welcome to Mostly Books Meets. I'm Sarah. I'm Imogen. And I'm Lindsay. And together we are the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. Hi, it's Sarah. This week I'm talking to author Abigail Dean. Abby's debut novel, Girl A, was published in January this year after a nine-way auction resulted in her signing with HarperCollins. The book immediately became a Sunday Times bestseller and received rave reviews across the industry and in the press. The book's been sold in over 30 territories and has already been optioned for television and film. Not bad for a debut. Abby, welcome to Mostly Books Meet. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on here. I feel very lucky to have got you because I feel like this is your time. There's so much going on. There's been so much excitement about your book and, and rightfully so. How are you feeling about it all? I think it's it's just as um, overwhelming and surreal as you might expect. That's almost all I can say. Yeah, it's just incredible um, that Girl A and you know, the, the characters, the Gracie family are sort of out in the world. And I think often, you know, as a writer, you're writing in such isolation unsure if you know anybody's going to read this story or or meet these characters so you know the idea that they're now out there and you know the people that I've been obsessed with for so long people feel something for them and like them or detest them as they see fit it's just wonderful it's really amazing I bet it is we'll come back to talk about Girl 8 shortly but first of all I'd just like to go back in time right back to your childhood you were born in Manchester and grew up in the Peak District what do you remember about your childhood? Yes, I lived in a relatively kind of small village in the Peak District. And it was this magnificent landscape, which is both absolutely gorgeous. It's it's kind of beautiful, beautiful moorland, but also has a real bleakness to it. And I grew up as an only child. So I had, I think I had an extra amount of time for reading and for books. My parents were English teachers as well. So I think that helped a great deal in terms of the house was pretty packed with books to be stolen and and to be sort of (laughs) taken from the shelves, you know, even the ones that weren't quite suitable. Yeah, I'm sure. I guess if you had two parents as English teachers, you you just couldn't help but, but love books. So is there ever a point in your life that you can remember not reading or has it always been there? There's one point in my life when I didn't read a great deal for pleasure in terms of the things that I chose. I still got a great deal of pleasure from reading. That was when I was at university and I was studying English. And I think that during term time, at least, there was just so much to be read that was required that I certainly didn't choose books in the way that I do now. I say that and I think in a way it was a good challenge because I think that there's always an inevitable temptation to return to the same kind of books that you might always read, you know, the same kind of periods or writers from a particular country. And I think when I was at university, I was taken outside that. A bit. So I was reading a lot, but I guess I wasn't reading maybe quite as as I do now and as I had before. 
Yeah, when I was at university, I lived with a girl who studied English. I was studying maths, so it was a very different way of studying. But I was always astounded at how many books she had to read each week. <laughs> yes, and I'm a very slow reader as well, so, so that, that definitely didn't help. The Victorian novels were a struggle at times, just from a pure pace perspective. Yeah, I bet. So you studied English literature at Cambridge, and you graduated with a double first which is amazing. And after graduating, you worked as a bookseller in Waterstones, fellow bookseller. Yay! Yes! <laughs> How long did you do that for and, and did you enjoy it? I really enjoyed it. I started doing it when I was about, I think just before I went to university, I was still at school and I, I think I was 16, 17 and I did some work experience at Waterstones and essentially I loved it so much that I basically I just refused to leave <laughs> I was just sort of still there two years later um, and, and actually three or four years later I did it when I was um, when I was at university as well I really loved it I loved talking to customers and to other booksellers about books it was a real pleasure and I still have some very very good friends who I met working in that job who are readers of Girl A now which feels really wonderful it was a fantastic job it's difficult to explain to anyone who hasn't done the job just how brilliant it is because you're surrounded by these things that are just magical and everyone that does the job loves the books don't they yeah yeah and I think also just having customers who come back and they've read something that you recommended and they've loved it and they want like another recommendation that is just yeah it's just very very cool that you can have given someone a story in that way I absolutely agree yeah it feels really lovely when someone comes back and specifically find you as the individual and you're the one that gave them that particular book and you feel all like oh well I did that <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah you've made someone's week and that's just great so you worked at Waterstones for a bit, but uh, post-university, you decided to do a law conversion and you got a job as a lawyer. And throughout your 20s, I understand you were working pretty hard, working a lot, traveling a lot. And it was just before your 30th birthday, you decided probably you needed a bit of a change. What happened? Yeah, it, it was a six-year period of working very long hours. And, and it was almost a bit like being submerged. I think that you're so busy and time to yourself becomes very scarce and obviously it's also a time you know in your 20s that you want to be spending time with friends and socializing as much as possible as well and I think that certainly for me writing went out of the window to be honest um I, I would still sometimes write short stories or sketches of characters but never very seriously and I, I also think that during that period I had quite precious ideas about writing <laughs> so you know, I, I had this idea that I had to write by hand in your know, particular notebooks and, you know, almost like there had to be this perfect quiet and this perfect long stretch of time, um, which was very unrealistic. <laughs> and I was coming up to my 30th birthday and had had a particularly grueling few months at work. I remember vividly missing my husband's 30th birthday on a Saturday night, which was oh, no. not ideal. Didn't go down. Well, actually, I say it didn't go down well. He was pretty forgiving, but I, I don't think I was as forgiving of, of myself. And yeah, I, I think I sort of started to question why I had abandoned writing and also questioned whether the, the lifestyle was making me particularly happy or whether there was other stuff that I wanted to try. So I decided to leave the law firm where I was working and actually had a wonderful support from my colleagues in doing that. You know, I think they very much understood that if I wanted to have a go at writing, it was probably not an environment that would help with that. 
And yeah, I took three months off between jobs and sort of made a start on Girl A. So just before we start talking about Girl A, you mentioned there that you um, had had these thoughts about writing, writing longhand in particular notebook. I get the impression you'd written for a long time then. Did you write a lot as a child and growing up? Was that always something you did? Yes. Yeah, it was. As a child, I used to write a lot of stories and just sort of filled notebook after notebook, uh, really. And I I think as a teenager as well, I would write a great deal. I I remember writing on my parents' first computer, you know, which was one of those grey monstrosities um (laughs) and I remember writing kind of yeah before school I would get up and try to fit in a narrative writing it was a work ethic that I work wish I wish I still had now I'm not (laughs) sure if I I I, I do Uh, and yeah I I wrote a lot of fan fiction just a kind of great range really during the time I was at school and and I think it wasn't really until I went to university that I I kept writing kind of tapered off a, a bit Okay, you were busy reading a lot of books. (laughs) Yeah, struggling to read faster. (laughs) (laughs) Those Victorian novels. So let's go back to you decide to leave your job. And that's that's a big decision to make. So I had got my next job lined up by the time I left. When the decision came to leave, things were still slightly uncertain. But by the time I left, I, I had a position lined up for three months' time. And so as a standard kind of typically risk-averse lawyer, <laughs> I did have something waiting at the end of that three-month period. That's perfect then, isn't it? Because then you know you've got this time and you then have got the security at the end of that three months. So you can really focus on what you wanted to do. So you took the time off to write, and I understand you went to Dulwich Library every day during those three months to do just that. Tell me about that. Yeah, exactly. I um, I would kind of just go along every every morning and say Monday to Friday and just treated it like a full-time job, really. I'd say a full-time job. I think I rarely started writing before you know, 11 a.m. So a job with very, very flexible hours. Um, Make the most of it. Yeah, I needed a bit of sleep as well. So I would write from, say, 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. every day. And Dulwich Library is a very beautiful building with a lovely team. Um, It's about a 25-minute walk from my flat. So I would just, yeah, kind of walk along every day, listening to sort of music that, you know, made me think of the characters and had a very clear girl A playlist um, over t- that developed over time. <laughs> and I think it was also a heatwave summer. It was the summer of 2018. So it was this very sticky, hot room on the on the on the top floor of Dulwich Library, which had the same you know, the same characters would appear every day. The same old man reading the newspaper, and the same school <laughs> children who came in, you know, at four p.m. and sort of flirted with each other. <laughs> and it, it was just a great routine. It was a real kind of a luxury of time, and I think I also realized kind of a massive privilege to have three months without the worry of a job and three months just to write you know it was very very lucky I think to have that time yeah but also testament to the work you've done up until that point you know you've worked hard and you've got your next job lined up so fair play to you for being able to do it let's talk about Girl A but anybody who hasn't heard about the book yet or hasn't read it yet can you just do your elevator pitch please (laughs) 
<laughs> sure, I, I can. So yeah, Ger- Gerlay is Lex Gracie and Lex manages to escape from her family home as a child. Um, as she does so, she frees her six brothers and sisters and exposes her parents' cult and the crimes that they've been committing against their children as part of that. And the house that Lex escapes from becomes known as the House of Horrors in the press and and garners a great deal of attention. And Gurley opens 15 years after Lex's escape, by which time she is a successful attorney. Um, She's living in New York and she really does everything she can to avoid thinking about her past. And that's until her mother dies in prison at the beginning of the novel and leaves Lex and her siblings the House of Horrors in her will, which forces Lex to return to the UK and to reconnect with her siblings to decide the fate of the family home. And in doing so, you know, there's that resurrection of old shared childhood alliances and battles as the Gracie family decide what should become of the house. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, I was very lucky. I was given an advanced copy of this book, one of the brilliant perks of being a bookseller. And I read it in two days. I read it over the course of a weekend. I couldn't put it down. Thank you, Sarah. (laughs) Well, it's brilliant. The characters in the book are all so brilliantly defined. And your descriptions, it's like you're there, especially the descriptions about the house and the experience, like the, the scene where she escapes. All of that is just so vivid. Where did the idea come from? Because it's it's quite dark and it, there's a lot of complexities to it. So what was your inspiration? Yeah, there was two kind of real key inspirations. And the first one was the, the sort of sibling dynamics and, and the relationships that you've mentioned between the characters. I think that that those relationships were something that I had never really had um, or encountered in in my childhood. And I was always sort of fascinated by them. I think as a kind of outsider, you know, I, I would see my friends with their siblings and I wouldn't necessarily understand the, the kind of chemistry between them in terms of sort of passionate frustrations and dislikes but but also this real tenderness and a willingness to defend somebody to the death that was something that I I'd often been interested in in my writing and I think yeah I kind of built the Gracie family out of that interest and I I was also always very interested in true crime and you know I, I think I'm I've probably watched the the same Netflix documentaries and listen to the same podcasts as, as lots of other other listeners. And I think that I always wondered in those cases, you know, often there's such a focus on the particular action, you know, on the crime itself. And I think especially crimes involving young people and teenagers, I, I was interested in how does that affect them in the months, you know, that become years that become decades that follow. I guess the idea that the story does not stop with the headline and the photograph, but what about all the time after it? Um, and that was what I wanted to, to really think about in Girl A. Yeah, I think the most fascinating bit is how she responds to do all of her siblings and the way she does that you know, with each of them. And it's all different, isn't it? Every single one. Yeah. Really, really good. And I just have to say now, um, before we move on, because uh, we're recording this on the 2nd of February, and just as I was 
setting up the call today, I got the email with the latest charts and it has just been announced that you are number two in the Hardback Fiction charts, yes. uh, just behind Richard Osman, which I just want to say congratulations, because I just think that's an amazing, amazing achievement. Your book's been out five minutes, the debut author. I mean, how do you feel about that? Um, I feel completely overwhelmed, I think. Um, I just feel very, very lucky and happy that that readers are meeting the characters, I think, and that so many people are... Um, a sort of reading Lex's story and getting to know her as a as a narrator. I, I feel sort of odd pride, I think, in the characters, which <laughs> doesn't quite make sense, but I don't know how else to how else to explain it. Yeah, feeling very, very lucky and um and yeah, grateful to to everybody who has supported in you know, the book, um, and especially the booksellers who who really have done amazing stuff in the kind of trickiest of circumstances. <laughs> Co booksellers. Yes, yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the publisher never had any doubt, to be honest. When I first was told about this by my contact um, publisher, they were absolutely adamant that they knew this was going to do incredibly well. You got your publishing deal after a nine way auction with a whole bunch of different publishing houses. That must have felt pretty surreal when that was happening. Yes, that was very surreal. Um, I think it was um, kind of exacerbated as well because I was actually away at the time um, for work. So I was um, I was kind of isolated in in rural India um, oh doing a, a project for for Google and. So I I felt sort of oddly removed in a way, you know. I, I didn't sort of have the friends or, or family to just kind of share the the sort of excitement with in in some form. So I I would just kind of get a missed call from my agent and not have the phone signal to return it for like three hours, <laughs> um, which was yeah, <laughs> that was that's probably taken a few years off my life, but I think it was worth it probably <laughs> on reflection so, so yeah it, it was just a real, real shock I think um and yeah you know just absolutely incredible um when that took place yeah and I mean you're never going to forget where you were when you found out are you <laughs> no it's true <laughs> <laughs> so that all happened was that June 2019 is that right um I think it was um September so I think I signed with my agent with Juliet Mushins in around springtime around May I think and we actually edited the book uh together for three months or so um so it was a pretty kind of we did a, at least two very heavy edits um before it went to publishers um I think one of the things that made me realize how just how fantastic Juliet was was that she had a fantastic editorial feedback straight away for, for the book you know she didn't believe that girl a was perfect and ready to go um and I really liked that I, I liked the intensive edit that we did for, you know, to make it as good as possible before it was shared with publishing houses yeah it's just what you need isn't it especially if you've not done it before yeah so after signing with Harper Collins, you worked on the book throughout 2020 I presume yes certainly for the first half of 2020 and then it's appeared into the world in January. What was it like having the build up to such a massive event during such crazy times? Obviously, we're all dealing with coronavirus. We're talking right now in the third national lockdown. So how has the whole coronavirus thing impacted you in the way you've been working this last year? So I think in a, in a strange way, there's there's been more time for editing and there's been more time for working on my next book. 
Um, but but the quality of time feels quite troubled, I, I think. Um, you know, the, there's a kind of constant underlying um, uh, underlying worry um, at, at all times, which I imagine everybody has felt. I, I think it's also been it's been disappointing in some ways not to be able to meet readers and to meet booksellers and to go and sort of pop into bookshops. Um, I think that I've really realized the value of social media um, in terms of mm-hmm. managing to connect with shops and, and and with readers, that that's been a kind of real pleasure of the last few months in particular. But yeah, I, I guess it's just been a really incredibly difficult time for, for everybody. And yeah, I think in a way, writing at least is something that is relatively easy to do in isolation. I'm, I'm just sort of in awe of the, the people who have actually been working, you know, as the, the healthcare workers and the teachers. Yeah, I think as a writer, you have it relatively easy. Yeah, we interviewed somebody. The The last episode of Series 1 was a gentleman called Tom Croft, who had started the initiative Portraits for NHS Heroes. Yeah, wow. Yeah, and he was talking about his experiences working with people in the NHS and, and what they've been through in it. You hear, you know, you hear about it, don't you? But like yourself, I'm completely removed from it, which I'm very thankful for. But it kind of brings everything back into clear focus, doesn't it, when you hear conversations like that that are very real and very close to the situation? Yes, yeah, exactly. Have you, I mean, obviously you've had a bit more time. Have you found that you've been reading during this last year more or less than you would be normally? More. That's been a really good thing about um about lockdown, I think you know, in terms of looking for the looking for the benefits, I've definitely been reading more. I'd say um, I've got some heroic local bookshops who've been delivering. Um, you know, I think biking books around London, which has been yeah, that's that's been absolutely fantastic. That's good. So, what was the last book you read? Um, so the last book I read was um, Train Dreams by Dennis Johnson. One thing I guess I have found is during lockdown, I've read a lot of sort of short stories and novellas. Mm-hmm. I found I've just sort of enjoyed that kind of structure. And I think the sort of bite-sized um, pieces of literature may be kind of easier to digest at present. Yeah, yeah. And this is a very slim novel, which follows a tree feller in the beginning of the 20th century um, uh, who is affected by a, a great tragedy affects his his family and it is just so beautifully written he has a kind of hermit side to his character in the wake of this tragedy and I don't know if it's the, the fact that the character is so isolated at a time you know when I think everybody feels very alone but Johnson writes kind of beautifully about loneliness, I think, in a very sort of practical, um, non-sentimental way. Uh, and I think especially about kind of loneliness in this kind of beautiful, bleak landscape of, of Idaho, uh, where the book is set. It, it completely gripped me. I think I read it in about two sittings. Wow. Um, yeah, so that, that's been fantastic. I've not heard of it, but it sounds like it's definitely worth a read. You're right about the bite-sized pieces, I think. I'm hearing that from quite a few people. People are reading much more lighter fiction as well um, and things that they just find it slightly less complicated to process. I think all of our brains are so full of everything that's going on that having something that's a bit easier to, to deal with helps a lot. Yes. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, the, the writing in this as well is kind of so so simple um it's kind of just that that deceptively simple style that um that feels kind of easy but is like you know incredibly difficult to to master um because yeah it's it's beautifully written 
but yeah it doesn't feel like a strain at all something to relax with are you someone that has to start and finish a book before you can start another one or do you have a bunch of different things that you dip in and out of um no I'm pretty monogamous when it comes to books um yeah I am I, um, I I try to only have one on the go and I, I think it's potentially because I'm an awful multitasker so I'm worried that it just wouldn't work it wouldn't work for me <laughs> I just think it divides opinion massively it's like I was saying to somebody the other day it's like um when you turn the corner of a page as a bookmark some people find that absolutely atrocious. And others, others are just like, well, that's just the way it should be. It's just the thing. Yeah, no, it's, I had a friend um, the other day send me a photo of her copy of Girl A. She lives in Sydney and she had folded many a page. And I was kind of like, it's a good job that you're in Sydney. <laughs> you're literally as far away as you can. Be. Exactly. So that must just blow your mind that your book is being read by people on the other side of the world. It, it does. Yeah, it's it, it, it's kind of um, also sort of strangely hopeful, I found, to see your book traveling at a time when you can't. So, so I'm, I'm glad that sort of yes. Scully and um, the Gracie family are finding kind of different corners of the world when um, when we're not going anywhere. It's, it's really nice so um being a bookseller I hope me being a bookseller and I hope that you as an ex-bookseller will relate to what I'm about to say next but I have a theory that everybody that reads has a book that has had a major impact on them in some way that could be professional that could be personal do you have a book like that and if so what is it I do it's um The Insult by Rupert Thompson which I I first read probably when I was about um, 14 or 15 and uh, kind of as I was saying before about, you know, kind of just taking books from my parents' shelves, um, even if they weren't necessarily, you know, intended for, for me. I guess it's probably one of the first adult books actually that I had read. And I just think it's, it's just fantastic. The writing in it is sublime and you know just something to absolutely for for me at least to aspire to um it it has my favorite first sentence of of all time which is in um speech marks you've been shot (laughs) which i just think is is wonderful i think it's a pretty thrilling book but it, it is also stunningly written um it's about a man who is shot and is um is left blind by this um, by this shooting but over time begins to uh, believe that he actually can in fact see even though doctors tell him that that's not possible and it's about his kind of life as he moves independently to um to a kind of unknown and unnamed city and the characters he meets there and eventually a crime that he becomes um involved in yeah, it, it's just, um, it's a novel I return to kind of time and again, because I, I just admire the writing so greatly. Um, and I think it also has a perfect ending as well, I would say, uh, without obviously giving anything away. So I think the sort of bookends of that first sentence and, and this wonderful ending, I think it was just something that, you know, a book that made me realise what writing could be and what it could do. Um, and that's why I feel it's something that steered my life in a particular way. Excellent. I've just realised we've talked about the book that changed your life. We've talked about your book. We've talked about the last book. But we scooted right over your childhood book because we got chatting about university. So let's just go back to your childhood for a minute. So you talked about you were reading a lot because you were an only child. Um, Do you remember the first book that you read as a child? 
Yeah, the, the book I remember reading um, best, at least, it was The Orchard Book of Greek Myths by Geraldine McCorrean. It's illustrated by Emma Chichester-Clark. Uh, that's a book that I remember being read um, to me a great deal. And it's, it's kind of one of those books that, you know, is read to you and then you sort of steal it for yourself, for yourself because, <laughs> you know, my dad's like too slow to read this and I actually need to know what happens. <laughs> it's a collection, I guess, as you, as you might expect, um, of different Greek myths. So, you know, you have the Minotaur and Icarus and Orpheus and Eurydice. Um, there's lots about the Trojan War. And I mean, the, the stories are just so, you know, they're, they're just fantastic stories. And the, the illustrations in this book as well are really, really beautiful. Um, some of them in particular are actually really eerie, the ones, you know, of, of the underworld. And I, I think I have a sort of particular affinity for this book as well, because I remember, um, I, I think it was potentially bought um, at least very in very close proximity to a holiday uh, to Greece. And I, I kind of remember being read it at that time and, and being actually being terrified at times um, <laughs> that the Minotaur was going to come <laughs> because, you know, we were we were on this island. I think, you know, I, I remember still seeing some ships out to out to sea and my dad sort of threatening, not, not threatening me, but kind of <laughs> suggesting that a Minotaur might be on one of, one of those ships. Which, yeah, my, my imagination just ran wild. I think my mother was furious. You know, she was like, why would you say that? <laughs> but he, he just wanted to, he just wanted to kind of get my imagination going, I think. And it, it worked potentially too well. I think I'd say. He certainly did that. <laughs> and it's like the Minotaur does not even get on a boat. I mean, <laughs> still in the labyrinth, Dad. <laughs> but I, I, I wasn't as aware of that at the time, yeah. It's funny, I get your list of books obviously in advance and that book I didn't recognise the name of, but when I went to have a look at it, I recognised the book. So it was obviously somewhere in my childhood as well. Um, Greek myths are one of those things that it's really lovely getting them in front of children, very young. I think they almost have to get to children young to be able to catch their imagination before loads of other stuff distracts them. Yeah, I think it's awesome as well that now I'm finding that I'm revisiting those myths again, um, particularly with some of the really recent tellings, you know, by Circe and the Song of Achilles. Um, obviously, that's like Science of the Girls. It's, it's actually awesome because I feel like those, you hear the stories in one way as a child and then you kind of revisit them from a completely different perspective now and you know I think it just shows the kind of the capacity of stories it's just been really kind of great to go back to them and understand the things you missed and the nuances that these writers have found in them that you know as a child went straight over your head yeah yeah absolutely um those books Circe and Science of the Girls in particular are two books that we in the shop have chosen as books that we didn't think we'd enjoy but we did all of us that have read them Personally, I read Circe as a part of a book group and I wasn't that excited about reading it, to be perfectly honest, and could not put it down. I think it's so clever. So like you say, it's yeah. a another generation again. It's fantastic. It really is. So let's talk about, let's go back to present day now. Um, so we've already talked about the fact that your book is out there and doing fantastically well, but you actually have a job. You still work as a lawyer, but you work in a different company now. You work in a company you moved to after your three-month break. How have people, have your colleagues at work responded to what's going on? 
They've been wonderful. Um, they have been incredibly supportive and sort of excited mm. um, for me, which which I think is, yeah, that, that has been, it's been a massive help. And I think their support has has made the whole kind of process of writing and publication um, uh, just a lot easier. Um, I, I, I think obviously that it's a demanding job and, and, you know, there's no exception to that. But I think having them be excited um, is, is great. And I've been asked to do kind of like readings of the book at oh. team meetings, <laughs> which is it's so lovely. And yeah, I can't thank them enough, to be honest. Their support for the book has been really, really great. And I, I kind of get a bit nervous actually reading it in front of them because obviously it's, it's kind of band of lawyers and they're, <laughs> they're very good at scrutinizing each word. <laughs> so I'll be interested to see um to, to see what they make of it when uh, when it's in their hands yeah slightly terrifying audience <laughs> exactly especially especially a book with a lawyer in it as well i hope that i've not got any legal issues <laughs> <laughs> now go lays out there and it's doing very well and what are your plans for the rest of this year um, are you working on anything new I am. So since the middle of last year or so, I've been um, working on my second novel, which is, it really is about conspiracy theories and kind of about what different people believe and, and why they believe it. It follows two characters in the aftermath of an attack in a school. Uh, one character loses her mother in that attack and the other character believes that the whole thing was a hoax and sets out to disprove it. I guess in similarity to Girl A and the way that the Gracie children have very different views and and memories that define their childhood, this novel looks at what makes us believe a particular thing. Um, You know, is it it isolation? Is it influences from from around us? So so it's, it's been a strange thing to work on this year when you know, there's been so many muddled beliefs and there's been a lot in the press about conspiracy theories. Sometimes it's almost felt too close to home. But yeah, something good to escape into as well over the last six months or so. That sounds brilliant. Well, I can't wait to get my hands on that as and when it's ready. I hope everything goes well with Unibook. And um, I just want to say again, I think Girl A is absolutely brilliant and I think everyone should read it. I really hope everything goes well, continues to go as well as it has been going. And it would be great to have you pop into the shop when things are slightly more back to normal. I'd love to. But in the meantime, thank you so much for taking the time out today. I really appreciate it. It's been absolutely lovely speaking to you. Thanks, Abby. Thank you, Sarah. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.